You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. Because of our flexible cognitive skill, as long as we cheat just a little bit, we can benefit from cheating just a little bit and still think of ourselves as honest people. Behavioral economist Dan Ariely. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. times a day do you lie or cheat or steal? Well, if you're like most people, you'll probably say with some pride that you never lie or cheat or steal. And that's a lie. Psychology and behavioral economics, Professor Dan Ariely says, we all do it. The thing is, we all do it just a little bit, just enough so that we could still call ourselves a good, honest person. In his 2012 book, The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, Ariella helps explain the science behind our misbehaviors. So here now from 2012, Dan Ariely. I'm fascinated by how the, your whole exploration of honesty and lying and cheating dovetails so nicely with your previous work on rational behavior. Yes, so I've been interested in irrationality for a long time. Uh, why uh, people behave in ways that, first of all, are not described by the rational model, but also ways that we ourselves do not think, understand, and realize. And there's lots of irrational tendencies. And cheating is actually kind of a really wonderful example of lots of those. And it's a good case, case study for irrationality because what happened is that we have a very simple model about how we think dishonesty works. And we think it works just like the economic model. We think that people are weighing the cost and benefit. You pass by a gas station, you say, what do I stand to gain from hitting the gas station? What do I stand to lose? Would I get caught? How much time will I spend in prison? And that's the rational model that says we always compute those things. But in fact, when you look at it, this is not what we're actually doing, that the rational model explains very, very little. Now, there's a couple of important things. First of all, it's important to understand personally how dishonesty works because our own dishonesty, the dishonesty of people that deal with us, but it's also important for policy. When we think about how we're going to curb dishonesty in society, it basically has two answers. Bigger sentence, bigger uh, punishment, right? Longer prison sentences, bigger fines, and higher probability of being caught. But you know what? In addition to all the experiments I describe in the book, I've also talked to some big cheaters. I go and interview people who've committed serious crime. I've not met one person yet that has thought about the punishment as a consequence of this. So not only is it something that is personally important for our lives, it's also from a policy perspective we're missing the boat. Now, I'm not saying we should let criminals go free, but at the same time, when we put our effort, assuming that everybody considered the cost and benefit and the ramification, we're basically missing the boat and, dis and not taking into account the real dishonesty in society. So where is the real dishonesty in society? The real dishonesty in society comes from a balance, that an acting, a balance act that we all have. Uh, on one hand, we want to feel that we're honest, wonderful people, and we get kind of a psychic pleasure from that. We get to look at the mirror and say, hey, look at me, I'm a wonderful person. That's on one side. On the other side, we want to benefit from cheating. And you can say, how can you do both? You can get one or the other. You either think of yourself as honest or you lie. Turns out we could do both. How? Because of our flexible cognitive skill, as long as we cheat just a little bit, that's right, we can benefit from cheating just a little bit and still think of ourselves as honest people. Now, if we cheat too much, we can't think of ourselves as honest people, but we can cheat just a little bit and still maintain our view of ourselves. And uh, I'll ask you, 
Uh, how, many, uh, how many times do you think you cheat on an average day? If I really thought about it, probably a dozen. I think that's, that's very close to the estimate. And you know, many of those are, of course, white lies, and we tell to the benefit of other people and so on. Fudging on the speed limit. Yeah, <laughs> stuff like that. Now, now, we do it all the time, and at the same, at the same breath, if I asked you, uh, do you view yourself as an honest, wonderful person? You say yes. Right? And that's kind of the conundrum. Now, you know, we can argue about whether white lies are real lies or not and so on. But what white lies tell us is that honesty is not the highest value that we hold that we hold some other values quite dear to our heart. For example, not offending other people or saving face and all kinds of other things. Now imagine you're an accountant. And imagine that all of a sudden there is this question between what do you say to the outside world and what do you believe for yourself. In Japanese, they have two terms for honesty. One is for the real honesty and one is for the honesty that you represent to the outside world. Now the Japanese have been articulated about these two terms, but we all have them. Now, if you do it in your personal life, maybe it's one thing. If you do it in politics, maybe it's another thing. If you do it in accounting and banking, those are another thing. So it's incredibly um, interesting to see that actually when we have kids, we teach them how to lie. Uh, we teach them how to lie all the time. Um, you know, I, I have a, a very visible disability. So when kids see me on the street, they often point and ask what happened. And the parents' reaction is very predictable. They always put their hand down. They say, don't point and don't ask. This is just not polite. Now, the kids are basically learning not to say what's on their mind. And we all learn that through, through life. Now, the thing is that when we become professionals, uh, we have lots of gray, gray zones. And we can rationalize the behavior of these gray zones to motivate us to act in our own Self-interest. And here is one, I think, the most important and at the same time devastating way to think about this. It's really a story about conflicts of interest. If you're a fan of a particular team and you go to a game and the referee calls a call against your team, you cannot help but think the referee is evil, vicious, stupid, blind, you know, something, something terrible. You can't help but see the game from the perspective of your beloved team. Now, replace the word team with $5 million. And imagine you're a, a, a banker on Wall Street, and you could get $5 million a year if you could only see mortgages as a, you know, a mortgage-backed security as a good product. Now, when we think about people who are evil, we say, oh, these people would really believe that they are a really terrible product, but we tell their clients that they are bad. No, I think that all of us have the capacity to actually start believing that those products are better than they are. Now, add to that, by the way, the complexity of those products. Add, add to them all the different assumptions that you have to make and the parameters that you put in your equation and so on. And add to it the fact that everybody around you who is also a banker have the same incentive and they all believe in that. And you get a situation in which uh, conflicts of interest can really influence the economy to a very high degree. Now, again, we think about this honesty. We think about bad people. And if, if people did the cost-benefit analysis, as long as we have big punishments, people would not do it. But if it's about conflicts of interest, it's not about thinking about the long term. It's about succumbing in the short term to a biased view of the world that is shaped by, shaped by our incentives. And that's what we actually need to solve. This is what I, one of the things I find so fascinating about your book is the how we are dishonest with ourselves and how we delude ourselves into believing things. The key is really rationalization. I think uh, instead of thinking people are rational, we should think of people as being uh, rationalized. It's one of our fantastic skills. What, and, and the whole notion is what extent can we cheat and quickly rationalize and think that we're honest people? And the moment you can rationalize, you don't think you'll be punished because you've rationalized it away. This is, oh, 
this is one the most fascinating thing I find about your book. I work in the news business, in the newsroom. Every time a politician gets caught with, with his hand in the till, or a celebrity gets caught cheating on his wife, or an athlete gets caught using steroids, we all ask ourselves in the newsroom, did they not know they were going to get caught? Didn't they think about that? And we all think, how could a rational person not realize that? Well, your book says... It's not a rational decision. That's right. It's not, it's not a rational decision. They don't think about it. And there's a very different uh, view of perspective when you look at it after the fact and when you look at it up front. So, you know, if we look at somebody at the end of their criminal activity, we look at the whole sequence of behavior. And we said, you know what? I can't imagine myself doing the whole sequence of behavior. But, of course, they haven't thought about doing the whole sequence of behavior. When they started, they thought about one step. They didn't think about the whole thing. So now, think whoever you want, right? Um, any politician or any, any person. And ask yourself, is the first step that they took, what was it? And can you imagine yourself doing that? So maybe the first step was not infidelity. Maybe the first step was a hug. And maybe the first step was uh, a kiss. And maybe the first step was something uh, much more innocent. Maybe not ideal, but much more innocent. And now say, okay, could I imagine myself taking the first step? And if you say yes... Now you need to say, and how would I change my own understanding of myself after the first step? So, you know, this is not nice to say, but imagine that we had a president who had uh, some particular uh, version of uh, sexual activity with uh, somebody in his office. And now you can ask yourself, at that moment, did he define it as sex? When when he was standing there and and uh, <laughs> saying I did not have relationship sexual relationship with this woman I, I forget exactly the phrase he was using, what was he thinking? I I find it quite easy to imagine that at that moment he reframed the whole situation for himself in a way that said that this was not a violation. By the way, um, if you look at if you look at sex in particular, uh, <laughs> there's a there's a movement in which uh, girls are trying to save themselves. Uh, for marriage and not have sex before marriage. You know what? The, from the research, it looks like the amount of uh, activities that they engage in <clears throat> is tremendous, but not one that they can call themselves um, virgins. So they're doing all kinds of other things to maintain, to maintain that. After this short break, Dan Ariely explains why a cashless society may actually encourage dishonesty. Now back to my 2012 interview with Dan Ariely. The human ability to rationalize is really kind of incredible. And I don't think that criminals really think long term. So think about Madoff. Madoff's kind of, you know, common. Uh, this, he's a neighbor of mine, right? He's in North Carolina. I, I, I teach at Duke. I haven't been able to talk to him. I've been trying. But, you know, if Madoff was actually thinking about the long-term consequences and if he had a long-term plan... Don't you think he would have had an escape route? Wouldn't he have an exit strategy? I mean, if somebody is that smart and calculated, wouldn't he have figured out a, a way out? And the fact that, you know, he is in prison, his son uh, committed suicide, just tell me he was just not thinking about the long term. Now, I don't know this for sure because I've not been able to figure it out. But it's, for me, it's much more consistent with a lack of thinking and lack of long-term perspective rather than with the cold-hearted, calculated criminal activity. Now, coming back to what you said a moment ago about that line that we each draw for ourselves where if I go past that line, I'm no longer a good and honest person. I can't look myself in the mirror. 
That's a very movable line, isn't it? Very movable line, because every time you move the line, you, you rationalize uh, what you've done, and all of a sudden, this is kind of the new normal. And pretty soon, you're Bernie Madoff. Uh, well, you know, I mean, th- there's all kinds of circumstances. By the way, we should ask ourselves, how many of us are not Bernie Madoff because it's not in our character? versus because we didn't have the flexibility in the financial system, right? It's really, hard, it's really easy um, to have a, a job as an academic that you know, uh, has a very fixed salary and no bonuses and so on, and to say I would never be interested or influenced by conflicts of interest in terms of salary. And it's a very different situation to put yourself in his, in his situation. But once you take the first step, you are no longer the same person. And now you think differently, you rationalize things differently, you look at the next step. And I think that at some point, by the way, it's too hard to go back. I think at some point, things just are getting so devastated. Um, Look, um, I ask my students routinely, uh, how many of them have illegally downloaded music on their computers? Or or your book. (laughs) Or or my book. Actually, it's interesting. You know, books are much, much less common. It's really easy to get books illegally, but people don't feel the same way. And music, people feel very differently about and download it a lot. And I think part of it is that everybody's doing the same thing, and now they don't feel bad about it. I asked them, what would happen if the New York Times published a story tomorrow with your name, said you are one of the people that were found to have illegally downloaded music on your computers? They just don't care. Right? And this is, by the way, I think that by the time you don't care about crime, you're either a sociopath or you're the ideal case for the Chicago School of Economics. Now it's just about punishment. Right? There's nothing internally moral that is stopping you. Now, if you think about downloading books, people are still hesitating. If you think about going to a restaurant and not paying on your meal, you would feel really bad about it. Now, I think there's this deterioration over time that we start by feeling bad about behaving badly. Uh, for example, uh, walking out on a meal or taking somebody's wallet and so on. But there are some activities that have become almost like corruption, when they've become both bad and this is the way you do business. Now, none of the students think that downloading illegal stuff is legal, but they also just don't care morally. The moral element is not stopping them. Now, if you think about banking, accounting, physicians, dentists, and so on, you have to worry about, are we going to have the same deterioration that we have in the illegal downloaded business, and should we stop it early? Because if we don't stop it early and we wait until it gets to the issue of, this is just how you do business. Um, Plagiarism and copying an exam is the same thing. I was going to say, one of the important points you make in your book is that you discovered in your experiments that people will leave cash alone. If it's just sitting out, because that's obviously wrong. You cannot take somebody's money. But they'll steal something of equal value that's sitting right next to it. And you worry in your book that as we become more and more physically removed from actual cash, it's going to become easier and easier for people to rationalize, oh, I can take a few dollars here, a few thousand dollars there, a few million dollars there. Yeah, so distance. Distance from money. It's distance from emotions. It's distance from the ability to see the consequences of what we do. And um, if I see you, you, you're standing next to me and I see your smiling face and I have a chance to take $10 from your wallet without you finding out, I, I, have, I can't avoid the consequences of what I'm doing from an internal perspective. I can't stop. I think of myself, I'm a thief and I harmed you personally. But now imagine it's something more abstract. It's a call center in India, and it's somebody I don't know. It's a discount on the bill. It's something like that. All of a sudden, people are able to do it to a higher, much higher degree. So in our experiments, when people look at us in the eye, and they can lie, in, in the experiments, basically, people solve some problems, and they have to report how many they solved, and we pay them by what they report, 
and we find out how many they really solved. So we can find out the gap between what they say and what they did. When they stand there and they cheat and they look you in the eyes and they cheat, lots of people cheat a little bit. When they cheat for a token, when they say, Mr. Experiment, I solved X problem, give me X tokens instead of dollars. And then we give them the token, they walk 12 feet and change for dollars. Our participant doubled the cheating. And, and as you said, uh, now you really have to be concerned about what happens with mortgage-backed securities, what happens with stock options, what happens when we get electronic wallets, what happens when uh, credit cards are not cash. Could it be that all of those higher-order representations of money allow people to be dishonest and not think of themselves as being honest? And if that's the case, then our internal guiding mechanism of what's right and wrong is going to operate to a lower degree, and it's going to really be much harder to curb dishonesty in society. I did want to come back also. You mentioned plagiarism a second ago. We're told it's epidemic among college and high school students now. As a professor, how do you police it? So I think, I think it is uh, endemic, and I think uh, it's also with the school teachers, right, that we see uh, school teachers who basically um, have the no child left behind policy, and some of them uh, can't possibly find a way to teach the kids enough to stand to the standards. So they're basically kind of in a corner they cannot escape, and one of the ways they find to escape is cheating a little bit on the exam. But of course, they give very bad lessons to the students. I think the students uh, have two things. One is it's become more acceptable to cheat. It's not as embarrassing as it used to be. Uh, the second thing is that uh, we teach them values like friendship. And all of a sudden, one of your friends asks you, psst, psst, what's number four? And, and now you have to, to weigh the friendship versus honesty, and friendship often, often wins. In my classes, what I try to do is what we found in the research, which is that people basically need to have very, very strict rules for what's acceptable and not acceptable. Whenever we have gray zones, we're going to interpret the gray zones in a way that is good for our selfish immediate motivation, not even long-term motivation, selfish immediate motivation. So one thing is clear rules. I mean, think about something like Alcoholic Anonymous. If Alcoholic Anonymous had a rule that says one drink a day, people would get really big glasses. They would say, I didn't drink yesterday. But if you have a rule that says no drinks whatsoever, this is relatively easy. So I make the rules incredibly clear and crystal clear to the students. That's the first thing. The second thing I remind them, People are likely to be to forget the rules, to forget them kind of in a blindful, wishful blindness kind of way. So I remind them before the exam, and I get them to sign the honor code. Now, we have found that signing an honor code helps. If you sign the honor code, even if the university doesn't have an honor code, it still, it still counts. And what I do is I ask them to write their own version of the honor code. So one of the things is if you have an honor code and you just sign it and you don't think about it, it's not going to affect, activate your moral reasoning. But if you have to think about what you mean by being moral, all of a sudden this effect is increasing. You can't escape but think about it, and therefore it's actually more effective. So, so I think you know, when we think about conflicts of interest, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is government and regulation and how do we regulate the banking industry and medicine and so on. But I think it's also incredibly important for us as citizens. Right? We need to understand how, how it works. We need to understand how it functions. Now, I have to say that being armed with this information is a, not a pleasant way to live. Because every time I go to my dentist or my financial advisor or a lawyer, I'm kind of worried about what is their incentive and what are they thinking. But at the same time, 
I think it's incredibly important. So I think because the world has so much conflicts of interest, we actually need to protect ourselves. We need to understand how conflicts of interest work. We need to find some standards of how to deal with it. And we have to figure it out because we shouldn't wait for the government to solve all these things for us. Dan Ariely, who's 56 now, has been teaching at Duke University since 2008. And you can get a copy of The Honest Truth About Dishonesty by Dan Ariely by following the link in our show notes or by going to our website, heardeverything.com. And that, by the way, is also where you'll hear my 2000 conversation with another noted man of science, Neil deGrasse Tyson. I'd like to believe that the universe is actually accessible on almost any level, no matter your background, no matter your age. There are elements of it that you can carry with you through the day and become enlightened for having done so. And my 1996 conversation with a man whose own arrogance and self-delusion and dishonesty brought about his downfall, the Reverend Jim Baker. I had been preaching a gospel of uh, prosperity, but God has nothing to do with material things as far as I'm concerned today. You know, whether you're rich or poor, God loves you the same. And, of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything every Monday, every Wednesday, and every Friday. And you can find us everywhere you listen to podcasts. Maybe even some places you don't listen to podcasts. Who knows? Thank you so much for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, he's known as the Walter Cronkite of Latino Americans, the man who's been anchoring the news on Univision since 1987, my 2002 interview with Jorge Ramos. They might think that my life is perfect that I'm a very rich and powerful man, that I have no worries at all. And actually, my story is just like any other. It's a story um, that could be counted by millions of millions of immigrants in this country. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. <laughs>